You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. In John 14, Jesus begins this chapter by saying to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. That little statement in and of itself is amazing to me. We learn in chapter 12 of John's gospel in verse 27, in considering his coming death, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. And he says, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I came forth. So the trouble that Jesus began to experience in his heart, the kind of trouble that we see exemplified in the Garden of Gethsemane when he uh, was bleeding, uh, sweating drops of blood and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That trouble had already begun to invade the heart of Christ. We learn a little bit later in chapter 13, verse 21, as we've seen, that Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, say to you, one of you will betray me. There was trouble in Jesus's heart as a result of the coming cross and also the betrayal of Judas. The entire crucifixion event and all of the stuff that he would have to endure in and through that process was troubling the heart of Christ. And if there was ever a moment where he could have turned his attention away from the disciples, this would have been it. But still, in the middle of all of that, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. His concern is for his men, is for his disciples. It tells us in chapter 13, verse 1, which was our introductory verse to this section of John's gospel. He says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here when he tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. He is loving his disciples to the end. And so Jesus is going to usher a word of comfort towards his disciples. And this comfort will be expressed in a few different ways. And the first area of comfort is found there in verse 1, where he says to his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, different Bibles translate this in different ways. And from what I've read, at least, this is this is a difficult phrase to translate, mostly because it could be translated in a few different ways. It could say, you, you disciples, trust in God, and you disciples also trust in me. You believe in God, you believe in me. Or it could also be tra- translated, you disciples trust in God, trust also in me. Or you believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, or as we have it here in the English, English Standard Version, you, you believe in God, believe, uh, believe in God, believe also in me. Or trust in God, trust also in me. So the, the real question, basically, all I'm saying is that the real question is, were they already trusting God and needed to trust Christ? Were they already trusting the Father and the Son? 
Or was this a general exhortation for them to simply believe God, believe Christ, trust God? And based on their behavior, I think that that, that last option is the correct uh, view of what's actually happening here. Uh, you know, Jesus has gone to great lengths to demonstrate that he and the Father are one. And so it makes sense that he would be saying, listen, you need to trust the Father and by so doing, you would be trusting me. One of the first things here that Jesus is doing to comfort his disciples is he's pointing them to a simple life of trust. And I've found that in this world, this modern world, anxiety, worry is a, is a real problem for people. You know, I know anxiety is very real in my life. Worry and concern is very real in my life. And one of the greatest antidotes to my worry and my concern and my anxiety is simply to trust in God. You know, recently I was reading through the Psalms and I got to right around Psalm 100. The, the Psalms right before it are very joy-filled. And the joy is of the command variety, you know, telling us to sing a new song and telling us, you know, that the Lord reigns and to exalt the Lord and to worship him and, and uh, you know, to, to really be a people who are exuberant in our worship of God. And uh, recently I was reading and I got to Psalm 100. And it, was a, it was a morning for me. I was very tired. I was very worn down. And in Psalm 100, he says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And uh, admittedly, you know, when I began to read this, I, I just kind of realized, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tired. I, I, I want to make a joyful noise to the Lord. I want to serve the Lord with gladness. And I want to come into his presence with singing. He goes on later in verse 4 and says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to his name. Bless his name. And, you know, so I was on this particular morning, just meditating on these verses, thinking about this scripture and really wanting so desperately to serve the Lord with gladness and was just kind of having a difficult time actually getting there. When I really set my eyes upon verse three, he says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And you know, when I read that, it's like a weight fell off of my shoulders. And I realized that what I needed to do in order to have this joyful, at ease kind of heart that would be willing to make a joyful noise and serve the Lord with gladness, is I needed to know that the Lord, he's God. In other words, Nate Holdridge is not God. And, and I would never, of course, make a claim to deity. But sometimes in a practical sense, I live my life as if the responsibilities that belong really truly to God, those responsibilities rest with me. And when I live that way, with that kind of burden and anxiety, I'm, you know, in a very bad place. But when in my heart, I release myself to the Lord and I trust in him, I find that that trust leads me to great comfort inside of my heart. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Then Jesus goes on in John 14, and he talks of eternity. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. Now, here Jesus is referring to the second coming. Uh, I believe he's referring in one sense to the rapture of the church. And he's talking about eternity. And in verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. Some modern translations say, In my Father's house are many uh, mansions. And so this can launch into full-on uh, speculation on what eternity is going to be like. But that is a discussion for other places in Scripture. Here, in verse 2 and 3, Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples. Plain and simple. Their hearts are troubled. Jesus has said to them, I'm going to a place that you are not allowed to go at this time. I'm going to a place that you are not allowed to follow me to at this moment, but you'll follow me afterward. And so he's trying to encourage them. And he's trying to encourage them with the truth that there is room enough for all of them in his father's eternal home, being comforted with the future. And so, you know, eternity is designed in many ways to be a great comfort to God's people here on earth today. Designed to bring health and sanity to our minds. You know, my wife and I, when we plan our year, you know, we try to find those pockets in our calendar when we'll be able to get away and have little times of rest and times of vacation. And uh, as we do that, you know, one of the things I like to do is to schedule those vacations and book our reservations as early as possible. I find that when we do that, and make those commitments, uh, the earlier the better, I find that what happens is our hearts and our minds are set at rest during a busy time or a busy season because we know that a season and a time of real rest is coming. And so just a wonderful thing that Jesus gives to his disciples, eternity is coming for you. And this should have been a great comfort uh, for the disciples. Then he announces to them in verse 4, he says, and you know the way to where I am going. Now you remember back in chapter 13, verse 36, Jesus had said to Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And so Jesus announces to them, listen, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas replied, however, in verse 5 and said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? <laughs> you know, so Thomas, I love Thomas. He's like the kid in the class that asks the question that everyone else wants to ask, but is too embarrassed to ask. And he says, listen, you know, it's great, Jesus, that you think we know the way, but we don't know the way uh, and we don't even know the where. How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? And so Jesus calmly and patiently replied in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him 
and have seen him. And again, these are comforting words from Christ. First of all, the comfort that is found in the gospel itself, because Jesus is announcing something very exclusive to his disciples. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He he is not announcing and saying, I'm going to make a uh, way to God. He is not just offering in that Roman culture mix one more God for people to consider. He's also not saying that he's just simply going to blaze a trail to God that if we follow and emulate Jesus's life and we live sacrificially and obediently and we're basically good people, that if we do that, then we'll be able to be unified with God once again. No, he's not saying that either. He's saying that he himself, he is the actual way to God. And this, of course, is the gospel. That the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus as he substituted himself for you and me, uh, that, that he is the way to God. And this, of course, is and serves as a great comfort to you and to me. You know, just understanding and knowing uh, as these disciples were comforted, they should have known and, and been just been so blessed. We know the way to the Father. We know the way to God. And it's a comforting thing for a person to be able to say, I know the way to God. It's Jesus. He's the truth. He's the life. He is the way to the Father. And I find that oftentimes my heart becomes anxious and becomes troubled When I pick up some, you know, sanitized, sterilized, modern version of legalism, and I begin to approach God on the basis of my merit, or I begin to really take the burden upon myself to to please the Father, this is what I must do. And, And in those moments, the stress level begins to rise, And the frustration begins to set in until I take a step back and I realize, no, hold on a second. I know the way to the Father. I know the gospel. And that gospel message comforts my heart that I'm in Christ, that I have an identity with him, that I'm a co-heir with Christ, that old things have passed away and that all things have become new. This is the most encouraging message on earth. And so Jesus announces the way to the disciples, that he is the way. And he tells them, he says, listen, you know, this is the where, this is where I'm going to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Philip then responds in all of this. And he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. You know, these disciples are so wonderful. And Philip just steps forward and says, well, Lord, it would, you know, it would be enough for us if you just showed us the Father. Just show us who God is. We've, we've, we've heard his voice, you know, your baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration just a couple of chapters ago. We, we've heard the voice of God. But would you just show us the Father? This is a huge request that Philip is making. He does not know what he's asking for. He's not a justified man, regenerate at this point. He can't see God in his human flesh and body. Uh, But 
he wants to see God. And so Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, okay, the words, I do not speak on my own authority, but beyond the words, the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, you know, based on my words, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You know, every work that John records in his gospel is designed to demonstrate a greater truth about Jesus. You know, that he's come from the Father, that he is the Son of God. You know, way back in John chapter 2, Jesus turned the water into wine. And as he turned the water into wine, this was not a miracle that was merely designed to show us his ability over the natural realm, but it was more than likely a foreshadowing of his entire ministry. The very next thing that he, do, that he did is he, he went into the uh, temple and he drove out the money changers and he rebuked the form of worship that was taking place in the temple. He rebuked their empty worship. And when he turned the water into wine, he filled up uh, water pots to the brim, Jewish water pots that were used for purification. He fills them to the brim and that water turns into wine. And they said, you have saved the best wine until now. And it's designed to help us say and to realize Jesus comes with a better covenant than the first and old covenant. There's something more significant here than just a miracle. This is a sign pointing us to something greater. When he takes the blind man and anoints his eyes and tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam and the man washes and his eyes are open and he is, uh, receives his sight and is able to see, this is designed to show us something of the nature of Christ, that he is the one who has the light of the world, illuminates and shines into the darkness and that those who are blind will be able to see but those who think they can see will actually receive blindness as Jesus said or when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead before he does it he says I am the resurrection and the life his miracle was not designed to simply show us this power that he had over death it was designed to show us that resurrection life comes in and through him exclusively. So there are these things that we learn about the works of Christ, about Christ from his works. So he says, listen, believe my words or believe my works. But whatever you do, believe. Now what I wanted you to see here is that in verse 6 all the way through verse 11, there is a character that Jesus continually refers to, and that is the Father. The Father this and the Father that. If you'd known my Father, uh, if you'd known me, you would know my Father also. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And so he's talking about the unity that uh, the Son and the Father have together. 
And in many ways, this is a this is imagery concerning the Trinity itself. But one of the areas of comfort that we have in Christ is that through Christ, we've received a heavenly Father. We've received a heavenly Father. We've seen we've received a God who, you know, it's not just that the blood of Christ covers us and now we're at peace with God and the war is over with, but but we actually receive this God as our Father. As our Father. Uh, this was kind of illustrated to me recently at a little softball game that I was playing with my kids. And I remember my daughter coming up to bat. All of her other teammates I was rooting for and cheering for. But when my daughter came up to bat, there was just a different heart, a different mentality, a different mindset completely. And it's because the heart of a father is different towards his children. And a father, what does a father do? A father defines his children. He speaks into their lives. Just this morning, I was with one of my daughters and I was telling her about, you know, I said, you know, they're, they're, I want to tell you one thing that I really like about you. Would you like to hear it? And I could just tell that as I was sharing with her, her ears were open, her heart was open, and she was ready to receive that definition from her father. And so fathers, you know, God the Father, he speaks into our hearts. He defines us. He protects like a father. He teaches like a father. He defends like a father. He corrects and rebukes and disciplines like a father. We receive a father. And this is a great comfort to a troubled heart that we've received God not just as, uh, not just as a reconciled relationship, but we receive him as a father. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the father. Now, this is an incredible statement that Jesus makes. You know, he says, listen, if you believe in me, whoever believes in me, he will do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Now, it's, it's difficult to imagine doing any greater work than Christ has done. I mean, the work that he accomplished on the cross is the greatest event in the history of mankind, right? I mean, the redeeming of the world, the paying the, the, paying, uh, the, the price for you and me and taking in his body the sin of the world. And raising from the dead. You know, just an incredible work that Christ has accomplished. And so obviously you and I are not going to do greater works than that. We're not going to find some work that is better than or greater than atoning for the sin of the world. However, what is Jesus saying when he says that we will do what the works he does and greater works than these will he do? The key to understanding what Jesus is saying is found in the end of verse 12. He says, because I am going to my Father. You see, theologically what happened when Jesus went to the Father is that as he went to the Father, the disciples prayed, and from that position in heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the early church. Because the Spirit was poured out upon the early church, they received power to preach the gospel. And you remember Peter, he 
received the Spirit, a crowd gathered. He quoted from Joel 2 and he delivered a wonderful gospel message. And they wanted to know what they should do. And Peter said, well, you need to repent. You need to believe in Christ. And that day, 3,000 souls were added unto the church. 3,000 people became believers. And so, even though Jesus had done the greatest single event in the history of mankind in dying on the cross and, and rising from the dead, the reality is that that event would mean nothing to those 3,000 people until they had confessed Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when they did that, that was, I believe, in Jesus' estimation, the greater work. You know, here on earth, Jesus' ministry was very clear. He wasn't going to be the preacher who led people to salvation. He was going to be salvation. He wasn't going to deliver the message. He was going to be the message. But now we deliver the message. And when we do, people do what they never did really during the life of Christ. They actually are converted and born again, as Jesus said in John chapter 3. And that new birth is absolutely wonderful. And Jesus called it a greater work. In context with all of this, Jesus then said in verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now it's important to remember that Jesus is talking to disciples. It's in the context of the work of ministry, greater works of ministry. And as we serve the Lord, there must be a crying out to God believing that he is able, trusting in him, asking in his name. You know, of course, we're way past the idea of praying for our own sinful pleasures. John records in 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15, that we're to pray and ask anything according to his will. So we submit it all to the will of God. But in this context... Another area of comfort is very simple. As we get to do the work of the ministry, as we get to preach the gospel, and as we pray for souls to be saved, there's a comfort that comes over our heart because of the mission that God has given to us. Because the, uh, the attention of our lives is taking, taken off of self and put on to others, there is comfort in that reality. And I find that when I am in turmoil within my heart, one of the greatest things to do is just begin to serve someone else. Because as I do, my attention is taken off of self and placed on to others. And when it's placed on to others, my soul is freed of the agony of self. And I am in a place of great comfort as a result of being allowed to serve others and serve my Lord. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.